G'day again, everyone. Uh, I hope you remember back to last year uh, when we started looking at the book of Acts. So, we've, we've, so this year we're picking up two books that we left halfway last year. One is the book of Acts, the other is the book of Romans we're going to come back to later on. Uh, and I hope you remember how we saw the book of Acts is for the Christian our family history. It's our sort of our ancestry.com search results, if you like. Uh, we are the end result of what starts in the book of Acts. Uh, the growth of Christianity is actually one of the most amazing facts of history. Uh, in the history of the world, there has been nothing like the spread of the Christian church. Uh, when you read secular historians about it, they can't quite account for it. How, how one man uh, who never moved out of a backwater of the world, uh, how he sent 11 largely uneducated men and within 100 years... He had changed the world. He, he had shaped history. And what made it incredible and what the historians sort of realise is so different about the spread of Christianity to just about anything else, what made it incredible was it wasn't spread by a military conquest, wasn't spread by a government program. In fact, there is no reason, humanly speaking, why Christianity survived, let alone any reason why it spread, because it was opposed, it was persecuted from the very beginning. So how did it happen? Uh, I was reading a non-Christian historian, he was a non-Christian at the time, I think he might have actually become a Christian since then, but uh, I was reading about him writing about the spread of Christianity and he said this, he said in the end it wasn't primarily because of political machinations or great strategies or an advertising campaign, instead this is what he said, the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives and neighbours to share the good news. Uh, it spread exactly the same way we continue to spread it. And he writes that with a tone of amazement. He writes that with, can you believe this sort of thing? Uh, that's, that's not how world-changing movements are, are meant to work, but we know that is how God has chosen to save the world. God takes ordinary human beings, he spreads the message of salvation as we share the good news we have come to know, and the book of Acts is the start of that story. Uh, I'm actually really excited about getting back into Acts this term. I hope you get excited because really the purpose of Acts is to fire you up. I think that's actually the, the whole purpose of the book of Acts is just to, to fire you up, to get you excited about what God has done and what God will continue to do through the preaching of the gospel. Because we're picking it up halfway through, so sort of like the TV shows, say, you know, last week on Survivor or previously on whatever you're watching on Netflix, well, we've got to have previously in the book of Acts, because I don't expect you to remember everything that's happened so far. And the key thing that has happened already in the book of Acts is that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is the event that changed history. That is where the book of Acts starts, with Jesus raised from the dead. And so right at the start, Jesus appears to his disciples and he gives his disciples a mission. And you see it in chapter 1, verse 8. I'll put it up on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 8 is the key verse to understanding the whole book. And it says this, Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now just put yourself in those 11 men's shoes. It was 11 at that time. Judas was gone by then, and they hadn't picked Matthias yet. Jesus says, I'm giving you a job. Be my witnesses. Tell people about me. Invite people to come to believe in me like you have come to believe in me and be saved. And he says, I want you to start at home here in Jerusalem, 
Then I want you to go into that sort of little ring around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, your own country, if you like. Then after that, I don't know, how about taking it to the ends of the earth? If you think about it, for 11, mainly men from Galilee, that was an impossible task. Imagine sitting there hearing, that's your mission statement. But Jesus says, you won't be doing it alone. You'll be doing it with the help of the Holy Spirit. He will go with you. And so as you witness to me, as you tell people about me, the Holy Spirit will be at work in people through the message you share. And we saw the start of all that when we looked at chapters 1 to 12 last year. So they started preaching in Jerusalem. And what happened? Thousands of people were saved. And so it must have been just the most exciting time. They just got up, talked about Jesus, and thousands of people said, what must we do? Can we believe in him? Can you baptise? It was incredible. The church just grew and grew and grew. It was sort of like triumphant, but it was still just in Jerusalem. It was still just Jews who were hearing about Jesus. They still hadn't gone out, not even to Judea and Samaria. Then something happened. Something, if you remember, forced them to go out. Do you remember what it was? It was they started killing them. It was persecution. Uh, They started getting killed. Stephen was stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. Then James was killed, the first of the apostles to, to die. And so many of them fled. But as they fled, that was sort of what God used to, to spread, it was like, uh, in fact, one of the preachers last year, I remember saying it was like someone tried to stop the fire by hitting it with a stick and all they did was send the embers burning out and that's what happened. As they went, they kept talking. Wherever they went, they told people about Jesus. And so in these first 12 chapters, we started to see Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the key verse, we started to see it be fulfilled. The gospel had gone to Jerusalem, it had gone to Samaria and Judea and wherever it went, People were believing in Jesus. People were being saved. But there was still just the very small matter of the ends of the earth. The Christian faith was still, it was triumphalistic in these early days, but it was still on a world scale, a tiny little Jewish movement in a tiny little forgotten part of the Mediterranean. Then two things happened. Two things that actually were going to change all of history. Do you remember what the two things were? The first thing was God showed Peter that people didn't have to become Jews to be Christians. That was actually a key thing. He used Cornelius, uh, who was a Roman centurion, and he said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. He came first to the Jews. He came to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament, but Cornelius doesn't have to stop eating pork chops to, to be a Christian. Cornelius doesn't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. He does not have to become a Jew. All he needs to do is turn from his sin and trust in Jesus. And I, for one, am incredibly thankful for that because I quite enjoy pork chops. But no, I'm much more thankful because it meant the gospel could go to the nations. The gospel could go to all people. This is a massive moment because it made those first Jewish Christians realise it's not just about us, this is for everyone. But then something even bigger happened. What was the second thing that happened? So important. So I heard Saul or Paul get mentioned, and that's because he has two names. Yes, Saul or Paul, as we know him, got converted. So this was the man who had led the persecution of the Christians. He was the one who was doing the most to harm them. He stood there holding people's cloaks while they threw stones, killing Stephen. But then on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul and he becomes a Christian. More than that, God says, you are going to lead the charge in taking my gospel to the ends of the earth. So now things are set to go off at this point. 
in the book of Acts. Uh, and that's where we're picking up the story. In the first half of the book, gospel has gone to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Peter has been the star of the show, if you like. Well, now it turns to Paul and how the gospel goes to the world. So that's my last week, if you like, in the book of Acts. It's been a long introduction. Get us back to speed. Shake yourself off now. Shake yourself off. Get yourself into it. Turn to chapter 13. And I have to say, I challenge you. I challenge you. If you are a Christian, I challenge you not to get fired up and excited by what God does in the second half of the book of Acts. There's something wrong with you if you don't. So come with me. So first of all, I've called the first part sent by God. I'm looking at verses 1 to 3. So in Acts 13, we're in Antioch, where, where a church has grown up, modern day sort of Syria, and Paul and Barnabas are two of the leaders of this church. What a church we are part of, if you think about it. They've got five pastors, five prophets and teachers. Two of them are Paul and Barnabas, just two of the most famous preachers in history. Okay, so God had different plans for those two. So it tells us, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. And we immediately get hung up on how did the Holy Spirit say that to them? You know, did he uh, appear in a vision to them? Did they all just feel like this was the, the right thing to do? We're just not told. Whatever happened, they understood God has a job for Paul and Barnabas. It's important we remember this isn't saying how God will guide us. This is not uh, the, the, the example to follow, if you like. There are some Christians who are always waiting for, for God's voice or for, for a feeling, but the Scriptures tell us actually the main way God guides us is by His Word through the Scriptures, and then He gives us wisdom and He gives us wise brothers and sisters to, to help us. Here, though, at this vital moment, God was saying, it's time for Barnabas and Paul to go to the world. It's also really important to see, if you look at verse 3, even though this was the Apostle Paul, and even though they were convinced the Holy Spirit had told them, they still prayed about it. They still tested it. But after that, the church said, this is God's will. So they commissioned them, they laid hands on them, and they sent them out. I think this is a wonderful little moment. Uh, because while there is nothing sadder than people leaving a church for bad reasons... Uh, you know, because of ungodliness, because of a dispute, or just for no good reason. Uh, on the other hand, there is no more magical thing, no better thing than sending people out, I think. Sending people out for good reasons. There's nothing better than people being sent to do God's work. Uh, in fact, it's a sign of a healthy church that it sends people out. Uh, you see, people leaving a church can either be a sign of a bad church, of something where there's a problem, or a sign of a good church where they're being sent out. Like in a few months, we're going to send Lama out to Vietnam, you know, to share the gospel there. Like, you know, when we laid our hands on the McDowells and sent them to Paraguay, or the newbies and sent them to the Philippines, or the Blouses and sent them to Argentina. As hard as it is to let people go, it'd be lovely to have those people in our church, wouldn't it? It'd be lovely to have them here encouraging us. But that's what a healthy church does. It sends people out to grow the church. So with the blessing of their church... Paul and Barnabas head off and they sail to Cyprus. I put it on a map here, so it's very small on my screen, but hopefully you can get the gist of it. They were modern-day Syria, sort of Lebanon area. They go across to the island of Cyprus. And so wherever they went, they would start in the synagogue because the gospel was first to the Jew. So you'd always go to the Jews first, uh, but then they would move on and preach Jesus to, to anyone who, who would listen. So they get to a place called Paphos, 
And then the story focuses in on two people they meet. And so they meet Sergius Paulus. Sergio, this is your one moment in the Bible. There you go. Well done. And he was like the governor, a very important man. It says he was an intelligent man who wants to hear about Jesus. Uh, that was a promising start. When it says it's intelligent, I think it's making the point that he, he, he's smart enough to want to hear about Jesus. But straight away there's opposition because there was a sorcerer there. Do you see there a Jewish false prophet called Bar-Jesus? His name is very ironic because his name means son of salvation. Son of salvation, but he doesn't live up to his name. He has another name, Elamas, or the sorcerer. And he is determined to stop Sergius hearing about Jesus and finding salvation. So Paul could not let that happen. Look at verse 9. It says, Then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, You son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Powerful stuff, isn't it? And he doesn't just verbally condemn him. He actually does something a little bit disconcerting, really. He does one of the very few miracles of judgment in the New Testament. So usually Jesus and the apostles' miracles were about, you know, making blind people see, about healing the sick. Here, they make a seeing man blind. And so why is there such a strong word here? Why such an act of judgment it's because this man was stopping someone hearing about Jesus. There is no worse thing a person can do than stop someone hearing about Jesus. Because that is stopping someone finding salvation. That is like barring the, the fire exits and blocking the way out of a burning building. And that's why Paul calls him a son of the devil. Because it is the devil's work to stop people finding salvation in Christ. It is Satan's work. That's what he lives to do. Satan's primary work, sometimes Christians get, get sort of give the devil too much credit and they find the devil behind every rock and every, you know, oh, I tripped over, that's the devil. No, Satan's primary work is to lead people away from Christ. And sometimes he does that through the occult, like this man here. More often he does it through the mundane things of life. What are Satan's biggest weapons today? in our modern Western culture. I think it's busyness, technology, sport, money, what our family thinks of us. He uses them all just to distract us from hearing about Jesus, listening to Jesus, reading his word, following him. That's the devil's work. Sometimes though the devil does it through people, people who come into the church, who try to throw doubt on sound doctrine, try to breed division, try to lead people away. That is the devil's work. But here, as soon as Paul removes the distraction, what happens? This intelligent man, Sergius, considers the claims of Jesus and believes. And he is saved. It's a great moment, isn't it? I want you to understand how massive this is. Cornelius was already a God-fearer. Uh, here is a man who knew nothing about Jesus, hearing about Jesus and being saved. You see, this is a massive moment. This is the first drop in the ocean of the gospel going to all people, including us. But it also reminds us, wherever the gospel is preached, something else will happen. There will be opposition. The gospel is always a word of salvation to those who believe, but a word of judgment to those who oppose it. Well, let's move on. Uh, Acts only gives us a highlights package. I'm sure lots more people uh, became Christians in, in, in Cyprus, but now the story moves on. And I've called this last part, which is a long part, verses 13 to 52, God's work of salvation. 
We're only going to deal really quickly with this part of the story because I spent too long on the getting us back up to speed at the start. But from Cyprus, they sail across. If we get our map again, there it is. They sail across to what we call Turkey. And just to confuse us, they end up in another town called Antioch. There were Antiochs everywhere. Uh, and, but this is a different one. This is called Pisidian Antioch. Uh, and so again, what do they do? They go to the synagogue first, because that's what you do, gospel first to the Jews. After the Bible readings, from what we call the Old Testament, Paul was asked if he had a word of encouragement to share, because he was a rabbi. He was a, a Jewish teacher. So they said, hey, if you got a word, they thought he might give them a boring 20-minute sermon on Isaiah or something. Every so often, I make the mistake of giving certain people in our church access to the microphone, and I regret it. I think to this day, they regret giving Paul the microphone. Now, it's a really long speech. It goes from verses 16 to 41 there. We haven't got time to go through it in detail. I'd love you to reread it yourself. But its main point is really simple. There's actually two things I want you to point out. Do you notice I got us to read verse 25 of the preceding chapter about how Paul went to Jerusalem? The first thing you'll notice about this talk is how it's nearly exactly the same as the talks Peter gave earlier in Acts. Because people love to say, oh, Paul was different to Peter. No, he, he, he checked. We're preaching the same gospel. But the main point is really simple. Paul is saying, you know those books you read every week in your synagogue? You know that law with all its history of Israel? You know the prophets with all their promises? The one they are all talking about has come. And he is Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah you've been waiting for. And then Paul tells them how even though they killed Jesus... God has raised him from the dead and now he offers forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who will believe in him. Look at how he finishes it off there in verse 38. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Jesus. What he does there is he just captures the gospel in a nutshell. Believe in Jesus and you can be forgiven. Jesus justifies us. That's such an important word. I hope you remember from the book of Romans. It means he declares us innocent. He declares us right with God, not because we've earned it. Do you notice there in those verses he says, you couldn't do this by keeping the law of Moses. You couldn't do this for yourself. You're not innocent. We've all sinned. Instead, God declares us innocent because Jesus took the punishment we deserved. He died in our place. That is the message that Paul preached from the beginning, and it's the message I pray that we have all come to believe. And that is the message we want to share with others. And just like us, it's wonderful, many there did believe. And it says lots of other people were intrigued and interested. Look down at verse 42. People were begging them, come back, tell us more. And so the following Sabbath, it says almost the whole town showed up to listen, Jews and Gentiles. Now at this moment, we think, isn't this amazing? This, this evangelism stuff is easy. This missionary journey is just one success after another. Then something happens. And it's something that happened wherever Paul went preaching the gospel. Opposition rose up. Persecution starts. On this occasion, it was the Jews, obviously the ones who hadn't believed, uh, they got jealous. They start yelling insults. But do you notice how Paul and Barnabas aren't surprised? Because they know even that's part of God's plan. Look at me at verse 46. Then it says, Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, It was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first 
But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. See what he's saying there? He's saying, we've given you your chance. We've pre- the gospel is first to the Jews. We've preached it to you. Many have become Christians. But now that the rest of you have rejected this, well, now we're going to take your Messiah and share him with the world. And don't blame God, is sort of Paul's point. You've made your choice. You've considered yourselves unworthy of eternal life by rejecting Jesus. It's an awful statement. But that's what we do. If we reject Jesus... We say to God, I don't want your gift. I don't want eternal life. And so here he turns to the Gentiles. For the first time, there is a widespread conversion of all the nations, non-Jews. Look at how he describes it in verse 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. I want to tell you, this is actually one of the most wonderful moments in the Bible, one of the greatest moments in history because this is us. This is the first time, unless you are from a Jewish background, this is us. This is where we got on a big scale included in God's people. This is not just Cornelius, not just Sergius. This is where the doors opened and God's forgiveness and salvation just flowed out. But I want to just focus for a second on what he says there in verse 48. Look at verse 48. Because I would expect him, I think you would too, to say something like, and all those who were convinced about Jesus believed. That's what he says in other parts. All those who, who, who had accepted his message believed and found salvation. He doesn't. What does he say? He says, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. What's that mean? This is that wonderful truth of the Bible we call the doctrine of predestination. On the one hand, we are 100% responsible for the decision we make. Like those Jewish people, he said, you have counted yourselves unworthy. You've decided to reject Jesus. They make the decision. They are responsible for that decision. But at the same time, God is at work. God is in control. And before the beginning of time, he has appointed those who he will bring to eternal life. Now, modern minds often complain about this. How does that work? Doesn't that make me a robot? If it's all God's decision, da, 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 da. But the Bible is very clear in passages like this. We are responsible for our decisions. If we reject Jesus, that is our decision and we receive the consequences. If we believe in Jesus, that's our decision and we receive forgiveness and eternal life. But overarching it all, God is in control. God predestines He appoints those he will save. But please understand this correctly because this throws some people. People worry, what if I'm not appointed? What if I'm not appointed to to eternal life? How do I know who is appointed by God and, and who isn't? The Bible never encourages that sort of thinking. God's word says, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, and if you are persevering in your faith, then know this, you are one of God's people. The sign of God's election is that you trust in Jesus. And do you notice how Paul and Barnabas didn't wander around looking for people with a special mark and saying, I'll tell them about Jesus. They didn't wander around trying to work out, has God chosen that person or not? I I think he looks like someone who'd make a good Christian. She looks like someone who, who, who might listen to Jesus. That's not what they did. They told everyone about Jesus. And as people responded, they thanked God 
that God had worked through their efforts to see some of the people come to faith. And that's what I want us to take away from this start of this series in the book of Acts. God has given us, he has given his people a mission. That's what Paul and Barnabas understood. God has given his people a mission to share Jesus and his forgiveness with everyone. Whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, whether they are male or female, whether they are whatever else divides humanity, everyone. It's not our job to discriminate. It's our job to tell everyone about Jesus. And then God will use that faithful sharing of the gospel. He uses that to save a people for his very own. I pray that God might use my feeble words and your faithful witness in exactly the same way as he used Paul and Barnabas. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is for all people. We thank you that it is not just for the Jew, but it is for people from every tribe, nation and tongue. And we thank you for this book of Acts that shows us your work in the world, seeing people saved. And we pray that we might be people who are faithful witnesses to Christ and that you might use our sometimes feeble efforts to see people find the forgiveness and hope that we have found in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.